0: 1 Kings chapter 19, we begin in verse 5. And as he, that is Elijah, lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold there was a cake baking on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. (coughs) And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, and went out and stood (coughs) in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him, and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 18. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the last part of verse 12. Look at it with me. Verse 12. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then underscore these words. And after the fire, a still small voice. After the fire, a still small voice. Elijah certainly demonstrates to us just how downcast and discouraged even a mighty prophet can become. We noted in our last tendency, our our last study, a tendency that's found even among eminent servants of the Lord to become suicidal. Their discouragement can take them that low. Moses asked the Lord to take his life. And now in this 19th chapter, Elijah asks the Lord to take his life. Jonah, the prophet swallowed by a whale, would ask the Lord to take his life. Sort of makes you wonder what it is with such God-fearing and powerful servants of the Lord that causes them to reason that way. Well, perhaps we shouldn't wonder. After all, Elijah tells us what led to his discouragement. In fact, he tells the Lord twice with identical answers found in verse 10 and again in verse 14. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. And you know what? That's true. That was true. Thrown down thine altars. That was true also. Slain thy prophets. We know the reputation of Jezebel. She had been very much engaged in slaying the Lord's prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Only in that last statement can you find fault with what Elijah was complaining about. Everything else was true, but he was not, in fact, the only one left. Though perhaps he thought that way sincerely. It certainly did appear as if all was lost, Instead of ushering in revival along with any number of much-needed reforms, all the victory over the prophets of Baal ushered in was an angry threat from a wicked queen Jezebel that she would do to Elijah exactly what Elijah had done to the prophets of Baal. And if recent history had been any indicator, it would certainly indicate that Jezebel would make good on her threat. Wasn't an idle threat. And so Elijah, who up to that point in his ministry always took his marching orders from the Lord, now for the first time he reacts on impulse upon hearing the threat of Jezebel and he flees. He fled first into Judah, to Beersheba, left his servant there. Eventually he would embark on a 40 day journey that brought him to Mount Horeb, the very mount, some commentators suggest, where the Lord had, generations earlier, met with Moses, perhaps at that very cave where Elijah dwelled. Now there's an interesting contrast to note in the narrative that I think is worth pointing out uh, in contrast to Moses with Elijah. Elijah. We know that Moses pleaded with the Lord, perhaps from that very same cave up in Mount Horeb. Moses pleaded with the Lord to continue with the children of Israel, even though they had grievously sinned against the Lord by crafting and then worshiping the golden calf. The Apostle Paul in Romans 11 refers to Elijah in this mount, And he gives us a detail that the historical narrative does not. Listen to how Romans 11 begins. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? Okay. Here's the reference now to what we've read. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, etc., etc. An interesting note there, isn't it, that Paul informs us that in Elijah's intercession, he is pleading against Israel. Note that word against. Moses had pleaded for Israel. Elijah makes intercession against Israel. Probably a good thing uh, Elijah wasn't on the scene in Moses' day. Had they been able to swap places, history would be recorded very differently. He would have said amen to the very thing that God was threatening at that time to do, that is, to execute Israel in judgment and start over again. Elijah seemingly would have said, yes, Lord, do it. He certainly was jealous, wasn't he? For the Lord God of hosts. But somewhere along the way, Elijah had lost some very important perspective and as a result had come to a wrong conclusion about the Lord and about the Lord's purpose or the Lord's covenant. It's an easy thing to do. And I'm afraid that we all do it at times when we allow ourselves, especially, to walk by sight rather than by faith. So the Lord had a message for Elijah a message that he would communicate to him through the use of some remarkable contrasts the contrast between strong wind, an earthquake, and fire with what is called in verse 12 a still, small voice, the sound of a low whisper, another translation renders it. And we'll see in the course of our study today that the manner in which the Lord communicated his message to Elijah was as important as the message itself. So let's take a closer look now at what I've entitled The Message of a Still Small Voice. The Message of a Still Small Voice. And let's consider, first of all, the essence of that message. Look with me again, if you would, at verses 15 through 18. These are the words by which Elijah is recommissioned, so to speak. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. And as I say, what you find in these words, in these verses, is a recommissioning of Elijah. Matthew Henry offers a good explanation of these verses when he writes, God repeated the question, What doest thou here? Then he complained of his discouragement, and whither should God's prophets go with their complaints of that kind, but to their master. The Lord gave him an answer. He declares that the wicked house of Ahab shall be rooted out, and that the people of Israel shall be punished for their sins. And he shows that Elijah was not left alone as he had supposed and also that a helper should at once be raised up for him. Thus all his complaints are answered and provided for. God's faithful ones are often his hidden ones. And he's drawing that phrase, hidden ones, from Psalm 83 and verse 3 that refers specifically to the Lord's people as the hidden ones. And the visible church is scarcely to be seen. The wheat is lost in chaff and the gold in dross till the sifting, refining, separating day comes. Now the point that's made in verse 18, I think captures the essence of the message from the Lord to Elijah. Notice again what it says in verse 18. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. By this statement, the Lord is basically saying to Elijah that the work of building the church of Christ was still taking place. The Lord's cause was still advancing. The plan of redemption was not overthrown, but was still moving forward. And when you compare this message to the phenomenon which take place earlier, the wind rending the rocks, the earthquake, and the fire, along with the word of the Lord that was not in any of those loud and visible displays, then it can lead one to conclude what Christ himself says in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, and verse 20. Listen to that verse. And when he Christ was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. He answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. It's the only place in the Gospels you find a statement like that. Tantamount to saying, It doesn't come with the rending of the rocks and an earthquake and a fire devouring everything in its path. It doesn't come that way. In fact, there are times when you you may not even be able to perceive it. But it comes. It advances. Elijah, one might argue, had been tempted to think that the kingdom of God must come from the kind of manifestations that had just taken place on Mount Carmel when the prophet called down fire from heaven. It certainly looked on that occasion like the kingdom was going to make great advances when all those on hand to witness the fire falling from heaven fall on their faces and proclaim, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And that advancement seemed to take another positive step when Elijah was able to execute the ones that had led the nation astray the prophets of Baal. But when Jezebel threatens to make the life of Elijah like those prophets of Baal, and go so far as to swear uh, an oath to her false gods that this would be the case, all of a sudden it appears that the progress of God's kingdom was thwarted, And what could possibly suffice to conquer Baal worship now and advance Jehovah worship when such a wicked ruler as Jezebel still had the leverage to carry out such a threat against Elijah? You can sort of see how the prophet was reasoning. I was able, with God's help, to call fire down from heaven but not even that was enough to dislodge that wicked woman from her throne. She still had the leverage to kill the prophets of the Lord. It was going to take my life. It becomes apparent then, doesn't it, that in Elijah's estimation, all was lost. The children of Israel had forsaken the covenant and torn down the altars of the Lord, And the one who had executed so many of the Lord's prophets was still on the throne and would soon take Elijah's life also, thus finally extinguishing the worship of Jehovah altogether and firmly entrenching Baal worship as the national religion of Israel. What the Lord, however, communicated to Elijah was that all was not Lost in spite of how things appeared to the eye of the flesh. You should take note then, dear Christian, as you read your Bibles, how often does it appear that the kingdom of God has been thwarted and that wickedness wins or is about to win? It seems like the Lord has been pleased over the course of his plan of redemption to let his kingdom come very close. To become extinguished, it certainly would appear that way when you read a little further in the narrative of Second Kings, how Ahab and Jezebel's daughter Athaliah. You remember Athaliah; those who know your Old Testament history. It makes me kind of wonder. I I, I didn't uh, take the time to research this, but was Athaliah already committed to her? husband in Judah by this time. But anyway, the the, the narrative indicates to us that Athaliah would nearly succeed in putting to death the whole Davidic line. She's the one, recall, who after her husband was slain by Jehu, she goes and tries to completely execute the Davidic line which, had she succeeded in doing, that would have meant the line through which Christ was to come would have been extinguished, and redemption would have been thwarted. Or what about the book of Esther? When you read of the Jews' enemy Haman, who decides it won't do to simply hang Mordecai, the Jew that refused to bow to him, but he must put to death the people of Mordecai. That is, the entire Jewish race needs to be extinguished on account of Mordecai's stubborn resistance to bowing to him. It has always amazed me when I read that book as to how God's entire purpose for the ages hangs by a thread and is advanced by a pagan king who can't sleep one night. So he calls for the chronicles of his kingdom to be read to him. Oh, what could be a more effective uh, sleeping pill than that? Read to me the Chronicles, and the one that reads to him just happens to read the account of how Mordecai discovered and exposed the plot to murder the king. Had that servant of the king chosen a couple of pages earlier or a couple of pages later in his reading, the whole cause of salvation could have seemingly been lost. As Haman would have forwarded his plot to overthrow the Jews. The Jews being taken into captivity and Jerusalem being burned to the ground seem to mark the end of the story. But perhaps the most convincing part of the biblical narrative that appears to mark the utter failure of the cause of God's kingdom is when God the Father sends his Son from heaven to this earth And Christ proves his identity many times over by the miracles he performs. And when he rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, and I don't know if we appreciate the contrast of this enough. Picture that scene of the Lord riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. The crowd is shouting, Hosannas to Israel's true king. It seems now like his cause is about to be firmly established. The kingdom will arrive. The Messiah will rule. And this is so much the case that the Pharisees think on that occasion that they've lost. So we read in John 12 and verse 19, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world is gone after him. So it seemed. But within days, this same Jesus that appeared to have the world on his side is crucified and dies on a cross. We had an interesting question that we had to deal with as a panel at youth camp. It seems like one of Dr. Pollock's favorite activities now on a Sunday night is to bring all the ministers to the front, seat them on the stage, and let them field questions. And uh, fortunately, we are alerted in advance to what some of these questions are going to be, so that helps. I don't have to uh, think too quickly on my feet. But one of the questions that had been assigned to me, which I was only too happy to deal with, was a question that somebody had uh, on, on the issue of failure, what does a Christian do who fails? When everything just seems to collapse around him, it seems like nothing is done, has gone right. And the thing I suggested in answer to that question is that there is a very true sense in which the entire uh, kingdom of Christ is founded on failure. Failure. Okay, We're able in our day to read the gospel accounts of Christ's crucifixion in such a calm frame of mind as we read of them taking him, whipping him, nailing him to a cross. We we read that and we can read it in a calm frame of mind because we know the whole story of how his death, far from extinguishing his kingdom, actually laid the foundation for it by Christ's atoning death. The thing you have to keep in mind, however, is that those who were on hand at the time to actually witness Christ's crucifixion, they thought that the cause of Christ's kingdom now was gone forever. They were clueless as to what the meaning was, even though Christ had explained it to them. It just went over their heads, and so they thought this whole thing has just flopped and failed. I suggested on that ministerial uh, group that never had hopes been raised so high only to be pushed over a cliff, as it were. When you think of the triumphal entry of Christ and then him being crucified just a couple of days later, it was failure in their estimation. Can you picture those Emmaus Road disciples in Luke 24 with fallen countenances dragging their feet in the dusty road as they make their way home, they say to themselves, or to this stranger who was actually Christ, who they didn't recognize, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. They say to the risen Christ that they didn't recognize. Is it any wonder then that Paul would write to the Corinthians and say to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Don't judge anything before the time. Because there are ways in which the Lord is at work that you just don't comprehend, nor do I. So the Lord's message to Elijah in the cave of Mount Horeb, you might say, could be cross-referenced to Christ's word to his disciples. Once Peter had confessed the, the identity of Christ as the Christ, the Son of God. Oh, let's not lose sight of Christ's words or of the Lord's message to Elijah when we're tempted to think that all is lost and the forces of darkness appear to have triumphed. It does appear that way today, doesn't it? I've been reading a book recently that falls into a category of books that I don't get into very much. It's a book that has to do with politics and with who's really running the show in Washington, D.C. these days. It's entitled The Puppeteers by Jason Chavitz, a former congressman from Utah who was once the chairman of the Congressional Oversight Committee. Congressman Chavitz is convinced that the deep state is so firmly entrenched in the halls of Washington that it makes little to no difference who was elected to Congress, or the presidency for that matter. The whole thing is being run by bureaucrats who see congressmen and presidents come and go. If you're fond of discouraging yourself through the darkness that rules in Washington, That book might be just for you. What I want to impress upon you now, however, is that God's message to Elijah and Christ's message to his disciples, and hence God's word to us this morning, is that Christ is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It may seem at times that the gates of hell have won the day, But just as surely as Christ is risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of his Father, it is the kingdom of Christ that is, in fact, being advanced. So take heart, believer, and do your part. By letting your light shine before men and by openly owning Christ as your Savior and by utilizing that part of the Lord's prayer that teaches you to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Need I point out again, as I have many times in the past, that is praying in the will of God. When you are praying the prayers that Christ tells you to pray, you are praying in his will, which means that it is his will for his kingdom to advance and to advance in answer to the prayers of his people. You advance Christ's kingdom that way. We both have parts to play in advancing his kingdom, and that leads to my next and final consideration this morning. We've seen the essence of the message that the still, small voice communicated to Elijah. Equally important is, secondly, the manner in which the message was communicated. The manner in which the message was communicated. And this brings us to the still, small voice of verse 12. Let's read verses 11 to 13 again. And he, that is God, said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and a strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice... And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. What a contrast between this manifestation of the Lord with that manifestation that took place in the previous chapter. In that chapter in 1 Kings 18 It was the fire falling from heaven that consumed the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. It was that manifestation of the Lord's presence and power that compelled the people to fall on their faces and confess that the Lord was God. Now in chapter 19 we find a manifestation of God that amounts to a soft whisper. And this soft whisper or this still small voice compels Elijah to wrap his face in his mantle. Similar type thing. You may have a marginal reference that refers you to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, I believe it is, where you find Moses at the burning bush. And you find him on that occasion not only removing his sandals, but hiding his face in his mantle. Reminds me a little bit of that heavenly scene in Isaiah chapter 6, where the angels used two of their six wings to cover their faces in the presence of the Lord. The imagery in this passage in 1 Kings 19 serves to instruct us that at the end of the day, it's the power of God's word that builds his church and that advances his kingdom. The still, small voice, if you will, of God's word. In the book of Acts, you find the unusual phenomenon, similar in some ways to what's recorded in 1 Kings 19, Listen to the words of Acts chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. This is taking place now on the day of Pentecost. We read, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. All right? We, we have a mighty rushing wind, don't we, in First Kings 19. And it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, we find fire, don't we, in First Kings 19. And it sat upon each of them. The thing to note, however, is that these unusual displays of tongues and fire, that wasn't what built the church. It was the preaching of Christ that built the church. Arguably, you could say that those other phenomena kind of drew the crowd together. But then Peter preached to them. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, makes for an interesting homiletical study sometime to look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 and to take note of how Christ is his theme. Christ is his focal point. And in verse 36 of Acts 2, you have what could be entitled Peter's conclusion when he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. It was when they heard of Christ that they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And before that day was done, thousands of them would call on Christ. Now I say it was the word of God that built the church in the book of Acts. That's made a point of emphasis when we read such statements as Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. And it says, And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Or how about chapter 12 and verse 24, one of my favorite chapters in the book, because the chapter begins with Herod conducting an execution, executes James, Peter appears to be next, but By the time that chapter is done, Herod is smitten, and we read near the end of the chapter, chapter 12, verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Oh, you might say that there were hundreds and even thousands of souls that were hearing that still small voice of the Lord. And what they were hearing internally corresponded to what they were hearing externally when they heard with their ears the truth of Christ and the truth of salvation. And so has it been down the corridors of time that souls have been hearing that still small voice testifying to the truth of Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit upon hearts that enables souls that are dead in sin to perceive the truth of Christ. And so I wonder this morning, have you heard that still small voice of God's Spirit The way you can tell you've heard it is not by looking for external signs to accompany your hearing. I have to say that when the Lord saved my soul when I was 21 years old, there was no rending of the rocks by a mighty wind or an earthquake or fire, there was no lightning flash across the sky or the roaring of loud thunder. There was only the voice of my conscience which told me that Christ was real and the gospel is true. I gained the internal perception that this is true and this is real. And it compelled me to worship Christ. It compelled me to give Christ his due reverence the way Elijah did when he wrapped his face in his mantle. And it's still that still small voice that continues to speak to the Christian when he communes with Christ through his word and in the place of prayer. I am aware, of course, of a dangerous tendency on the part of some Christians to justify all manner of things on the basis of a still small voice that they mistakenly take to be the voice of the Holy Ghost. And so there are some things you do well to keep in mind when it comes to hearing that still, small voice. Take note, if you would, the Holy Spirit will never lead you in a way that is contrary to God's Word. I've heard it happen. Perhaps you have, too. Maybe you've been guilty of it. You have an internal impulse to do something that you just know is flat-out wrong. But, The voice of the Holy Spirit told me he's leading me to go that way. No, he's not. Uh, No, that that voice could be coming from your own desires. It could be coming from the devil. Well, I say the need uh, has to be uh, observed and recognized, that we need discernment in these things. When the Holy Spirit impresses something on your heart, The effect will be the same as the effect on Elijah. You'll be compelled to give Christ the reverence that is his due. When the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart. Again, during camp last week, the staff was supposed to sit at the same tables with the campers and discuss certain things that were assigned to us by Dr. Pollock. I was very fortunate. I didn't have to go find another table. Some of the campers found their way to me. And, uh, and the rest of us sitting at that table. And on one such occasion, the Bensel girls, wonderful young ladies from Reformation Bible Church, They were sitting at my table and our assigned topic for discussion was on making decisions. They wanted to know what a Christian should do if he's facing a fork in the road of life and there's nothing wrong with either direction. It's not a matter of choosing right over sin. It's a matter of discerning God's will. I told them that in such a case the way forward is the way that leads you on with God. And that their focus should not be so much on which path to choose, but instead focus on maintaining close communion with Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I called their attention to Psalm 2510, which tells us, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. And when your focus is on keeping his covenant and his testimonies, then there's a sense in which there are no wrong answers to which path to choose. You need not fear choosing a wrong path if your heart is being kept by the joy of salvation. Psalm 37 comes to mind, where we read beginning in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Your desires come into play in discerning the Lord's will. But just make sure that you're delighting yourself in the Lord when you contemplate your desires. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass, and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. So the Lord makes known His will to those that trust in Him and delight in Him and commit their way to Him and rest in Him. We do worship and serve, you see, a living Savior that promises His presence to His people. Your religion is not simply a matter of academics. It is personal communion with the living Savior through his word and by his spirit. So let's rest in him this morning. Let's rest in the assurance that he is building his church and he is extending his kingdom. Let's rest in the assurance that he does lead and guide his people in the ways that are pleasing to him. Let's be sure to exercise discernment enough so that we don't make the mistake of assigning every internal impulse we feel to be that still small voice. But let's also be sure that we cultivate the right kind of spiritual sensitivity that enables us then to recognize his voice. This we do by maintaining close communion with him through his word and by his spirit. (coughs) Let's close then in prayer. Hmm. O Lord, as we bow before thee now and bring this time to a close, we thank thee for the still small voice of thy spirit and we thank thee for thy word We are so entirely dependent upon thee, O Lord, and we thank thee that thou dost know how to make thyself known to thy people. Help us, therefore, Lord, to devote ourselves to keeping covenant with thee through close communion with thee so that we do know the way we should go for the honor and glory of Christ. We thank thee today that thou art building thy church (coughs) and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. O Lord, help us to walk by faith and not by sight, especially when the things we see by sight can tempt us to discouragement. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.